Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we dive into his word. Gracious Father, prayers have been offered already this morning to you. And I would just like to add my voice to that list of these men, my brothers, who have brought their requests, their supplications, their praises before your throne. As the song told us, and as scripture verifies, you are absolutely overwhelming in all ways. The passage that L.A. read, the Apostle John clarifies that you are light. In other words, you are all that is good in this world, Lord God. We cling to that truth, even in the face of evil, even in the face of death, even in the face of injustice. We cling to you for comfort, and we know that you are faithful, and you are righteous, and you will do that which you have said you will do. We thank you for salvation, Lord. We thank you for the unimaginable sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. May his sacrifice, may his honor and glory that has come from that sacrifice, may it pepper our thoughts, may it infuse our speech, may it be the very the warp and the woof of our lives. May we rise in the morning praising our Lord, our King, Jesus. May we retire in the evening doing the same. And at each point throughout our day, may that be what is on our lips. Not negativity, not pessimism, not anger or frustration or sorrow, but praise and glory and honor at the name of Jesus Christ. Father, as we begin to dive into the word this morning, as we peer into the pages of scripture to see your character and how you would have us do this thing called repentance. I pray for clarity and wisdom and truth. May my heart be humble, my head clear, my lips free. And may my friends in this room, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and maybe even those who do not yet have a saving relationship with Jesus, may they all be open and receptive to the word of God this morning. And may you be honored and glorified and worshipped as we do this. In Christ's name, amen. Turn your attention to the word of God. Listen to his words. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent And do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. 
Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What I've just read to you are seven of the 184 occurrences in Scripture, both the Old and the New Testament, of either the word repent or one of its forms or the idea of repentance. Now, this idea of repenting, repentance, is by far not the most prolific theological term in Scripture. Far from it. Uh, Just by way of comparison, the word faith occurs 929 times throughout the Scriptures. The word holy, or the idea of holiness, tips the scales at 1,286 times. So repentance might seem a little pitiful by way of comparison, 184 times. But I would argue this morning that it is one of, if not the most important theological concepts that we find in the Bible. And the reason is because God is a righteous, angry, flaming, holy judge. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. His wrath is fearsome. Habakkuk, in his book of prophecies, he says that to the Lord, he says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, calls the Lord a consuming fire. He will burn sin. One day. This is a God who has righteous indignation every day. That was from the Psalms and it's in your notes, the reference. As such, we are in trouble because we are sinners. We are steeped in sin, bred in sin. David said, I was conceived in sin in my mother's womb in Psalm 139. And because of that, we have a serious problem with the anger of the Lord that is directed against us. And repentance is the vehicle or the medium or the mechanism that God has provided to be restored to a right relationship with Him, to be declared not guilty of our sin, and to be granted the gift of eternal life. Now, to be sure, there are other elements to repentance. There's faith, there's regeneration, all these fancy terms. But repentance is the undergirding mechanism that all that flows through. We must repent before the Lord. So it is critical that we understand what repentance is. Not what we think it is. Not what our culture, you know, we might have a cultural idea. Well, repent, say I'm sorry. Yeah, that's about the same thing. No, it's not. We need to understand what the Bible says about repentance. If you're here and you don't know the Lord... Either you're visiting and you've never given yourself over to a saving relationship with Christ, or maybe you've been in church for years. And as we begin to look at what God says about repentance, you think to yourself, you know, uh, I've never really done that. That doesn't describe me. Odds are you've never really known the Lord. And so this applies to you very, very relevantly. But it also applies to believers, which I will hope to prove in just a few minutes. But before we get to that, before we even get to our text, it's actually not in 1 John. I, I kind of led L.A. wrong there in class. It's in Joel, but, but uh, 1 John's good too. Uh, before we get to that, I just want to define repentance. And I'm going to do this quickly for the sake of time. It's in your notes on the first page. We can say it this way. Repentance is to change one's mind and specifically 
when we're talking about biblical application, to change one's mind in regard to sin, to shake off our enslavement to it, or uh, and instead prefer another master who is Christ. That's a good biblical definition of repentance. Why? Why do you say that? Well, I'm going to do this briefly, but first of all, let's look at the words. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word that we translate typically repent is nakam. And it has an idea of being sorry or having regret. Okay, that's one element. But then when you come to the New Testament, we have the word metaneho, the Greek. And it means to change one's mind. You put those two together and you have sorrow and a changing of the mind. But over what? Well, the ministry of John the Baptist is instructive. And we're not going to turn there. But again, the references are in your notes. There's four components to John's ministry that I believe give us a very good indication of what repentance looks like. First of all, John's stated function in Matthew 3.3 was to prepare the path of the Lord Jesus. He was making his way straight, the scripture says. He was preparing the hearts and minds of the people, both of Israel and the Gentiles around them, to receive the Lord. And as part of that preparation, he called them to repentance. That was one of the passages I read. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In addition to that, he told the Pharisees to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This repentance cannot be something spoken by the lips or thought in the head only. It must be visible. And we'll see that more clearly in a little bit. And finally, in Mark 1.4, we see that repentance is specifically, when we talk about biblical application, specifically for the forgiveness of sins. So you have this idea of feeling sorrow and regret, changing your mind specifically in regard to sin, so that you can be a part of the kingdom of heaven, And there must be visible evidence of it. So again, our definition, you'll see it on the screen. It's in your notes. It's to change one's mind in regard to sin. To shake off our enslavement to it and instead prefer another master. And we can say it this way. Without repentance, we are quite literally doomed. We're absolutely doomed without repentance. So again, we must understand it. And and the question that I want to try to answer this morning is, well, that's all well and good, but how do we go about it? What should it look like in our daily lives? What, What are the nuts and the bolts or the ingredients, if you will, that feed into this recipe of repentance that God gives us in Scripture? I don't think that it's just some nebulous thing that we're just supposed to figure out how to repent. God tells us exactly what we should look like when we are in the act of repentance. And we're going to see that this morning. But before we do that, (laughs) I want to answer one more question. Namely, who does this apply to? Who does repentance apply to? The unsaved or the saved? Because if you look at the ministry of John, it's, it's very clearly aimed at unbelievers. Those who have not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. They are facing the wrath of God and without repentance they are doomed, literally. And so the question might be, well, is this message irrelevant then for the Christians in the room? No, I don't believe it is. Because I think that there are two classifications of repentance. And this is just me. This is not biblical. I mean, it is biblical, but it's not stated in Scripture that way. The first classification is saving repentance. You'll see that on the screen behind me. And this is the one that we've already talked about. This is when you don't know the Lord. You need to be restored to a right relationship. You need to be free of the guilt of your sin. And you need to come to Him in an act of repentance over your sin. That is saving repentance. But I believe there's another way that the same uh, function of repentance applies, and that is sanctifying repentance. Again, these are my words. 
And this is a process where I believe that Christians, those who have already come to saving repentance, continually repent as they walk with the Lord of their ongoing sin. And it aids in their further sanctification process. And let's look briefly at a couple of passages to prove that. Turn with me to Luke chapter 17, in verse 3. This is Jesus late in his ministry. He is teaching his disciples. And he says, Be on your guard, in Luke 17, 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. Now the question is, who is Jesus addressing here? Who specifically is he talking to? Verse 1 says, he said to his disciples. Well, he had a lot of disciples. There were a lot of people that were wowed by the miracles and you know, the free food and whatnot. They were basically bandwagon jumpers. Is that who he's talking to? Well, no, because this is late in his ministry. Remember, Jesus had some very harsh teaching on the cost of discipleship. He said, in order to be my disciple, you must hate. Your love for me must be so great that it is as if you hated your mother and father and brother and children, even your own life. He had some very difficult teaching that the hangers-on and the fad people following after a fad, they didn't want to hear that. And so they've all fallen away by this point. So I believe this is genuine Christians that he's talking to. And verse 5 proves it. The apostles said in response to the Lord, increase our faith. So he's talking to genuine believers, maybe not too dissimilar from us this morning, And he's telling them, you might have a brother, he's talking about a spiritual brother in Christ, sin against you. Rebuke him. And when he repents, forgive him. We won't turn there, but I'll also call your attention to Revelation chapter 2. In the beginning part of it, one of the passages I read, he says to the church in Ephesus, repent and do the deeds you did at first. Keep in mind... The church in Ephesus, if we needed to rank the seven churches of Asia Minor, they're probably the best in terms of the most spiritual, the most firmly grounded in doctrine. They were not without their faults. He makes it clear in Revelation chapter 2 that they had lost their first love. But they did still understand truth and they had the ability to discern right from wrong. This was a church composed of mostly believers. As we get further into chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation, it gets increasingly worse until you get to Laodicea, which is the worst of the bunch. But the, the admonition to Ephesus to repent is to Christians. It's to believers. So there is a biblical precedent for believers who have already come to saving faith in Christ to repent. And that's what I'm calling sanctifying repentance. And so this message is equally applicable to you, whether you don't know the Lord or you do know the Lord. And that being said... Again, let's get back to this idea of what is it? What does it look like to repent? Well, for that, we're going to turn to our text for this morning. And it's actually found in the book of Joel. Not 1 John. It's the book of Joel. It's in the middle of the Minor Prophets. It's right after Daniel, if that helps you. Daniel, Hosea, and then Joel. Joel is an interesting book. We don't have an exact date for it, for its writing. It seems to be likely that it was written in the late pre-exilic period. That's just a fancy way of saying just before the exile. It was written to the nation of Judah. So this would be the Babylonian exile that we're talking about. And it may have been just prior to the initial invasion and the initial deportation of the nobles to back to Babylon. 
uh, in 605, or it may have been in that 20-some-odd-year period between 605 and the complete destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 586. We don't know exactly when Joel penned these words. But he was speaking to Judah, and this is a book of, of pending doom. It is a book of promised retribution over sin. He begins in chapter 1 by describing a locust invasion. And this was absolutely devastating to the country, folks. In verse 4 of chapter 1, Joel, he says, What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Point being, there is nothing left. This country is completely devastated. He goes on in chapter 2 to give it a little bit more of a supernatural twist, describing what seems to be a human army coming in and laying waste to the countryside, assaulting the city, marching implacably against the people. And although it may be prophesying the impending Babylonian invasion, and it may even be referring to a specific locust infestation that might have occurred in the country, I believe there's a deeper meaning here. And that is a warning by the Lord of future judgment to come. And the reason I think this is, is because he references the day of the Lord. In verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 15, he says, For the day of the Lord is near. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, uh, For the day of the Lord is coming. Chapter 2, verse 11, he says, The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? And if you're not familiar with that term, that's an Old Testament term that refers to God pouring out His wrath, His indignation, His judgment upon the world, upon mankind, because of their sin. We find this laid out very graphically for us in the book of Revelation. But here, it's a, well, it's still future to us, but here it's way future to Joel. And he's saying, this is what's going to happen, Judah. You have impinged upon the honor and glory of the Lord. You have defaced His temple. You have cast uh, uh, aspersion upon His name before the countries around you. And this is what he's going to do about it. He is going to destroy you. But then, notice what he says in chapter 2, verse 12. And this is our text for the morning. Yet, even now, declares the Lord, in spite of all this that I've prophesied that's going to come against you, even now, return to me with all your heart. And with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And in these three verses, I think it's really fantastic because He gives us an encapsulation, I think, of what it means to repent. If if you think of it in terms of a recipe, these are the components, the ingredients that you need to pour into the pot in order to have a biblical repentance. And if your repentance does not look like what we're about to go through, then you haven't really repented. So let's begin in verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. The first component of genuine biblical repentance is that it must be entered into with a whole heart heart. You must not be casual about it. You must not be laissez-faire or apathetic in your desire to repent. It must be all of you or none of you. 
We talked, I mentioned the church of Laodicea earlier. Don't be like that church. If you recall, the Lord says, you're neither hot, like hot water, which is good for bathing or soothing a wound, nor are you like cool water, refreshing on a hot summer's day. You're lukewarm. You're worthless. You are useless to me. And when I take you into my mouth, I will spew you out. You're disgusting to me. That's the type of attitude that the Lord has toward a church or a people who is casual about repentance. Enter into it with a whole heart, he says. The second component is, and I mentioned this earlier, it must be accompanied by visible evidence. It is not enough to say that you have repented. It is not enough to say that you're a Christian. We must be able to see it. Yes, other people must be able to see your deeds and judge them accordingly. We don't determine your eventual fate, uh, heaven or hell, but the Lord does call us to exhort each other and examine our deeds to see whether our walk matches our words. So return to me with all your heart and with fasting, is the first component of the visible evidence. And what he's really getting at here is a denial of self. Think about this way. Fasting, what's, what's the point of it? Okay, make you hungry? Well, maybe. But the point is to train your mind that it doesn't have to rely on the body's cravings. To train your mind that it doesn't have to give in to the hunger pangs of your belly. But instead... Train your mind to rely on God alone. That's exactly what Jesus was talking about when he told his disciples, I have food that you don't know anything about. And his disciples started talking amongst themselves. What are they ta- what's he talking about? Is somebody give him bread? What's going on? They didn't get it. He was saying, no, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The point of fasting is to deny your body and fix your eyes like a bullet upon the Lord. There must be mourning and weeping as well. These are the second and third components of visible evidence of repentance. And I think of this as both the inward mourning and the outward weeping evidence. You must be tore up over your sin. You cannot just casually, oh well, I did it again. Oh well, moving on. And stick it back in the closet until the next time it rears its ugly head. You must be broken hearted over your sin. I want to give you a picture of this. You can turn if you like. It's just a few books over. The book of Habakkuk, chapter 3. And the book of Habakkuk, if you're not familiar with it, the Lord gives his prophet a horrifying vision of the devastation that is going to come to Judah from the nation of Babylon. He makes it very clear that they will be wiped out and there will not be much left. And he does give his, his prophet a little bit of solace in the fact that Babylon will be punished and judged in turn. But it's a horrifying vision. And then in chapter 3, he gives him a, just a towering description of the Lord Jesus returning to earth and setting foot visibly upon, I believe, Mount Sinai and marching throughout the kingdoms, laying waste to sin, making the nations tremble at him, setting up his kingdom to rule and reign in righteous authority. And Habakkuk... I have to tell you, by this point, he is just flummoxed. He is just completely flabbergasted by what he has heard. And he gives his response in Habakkuk 3.16. I heard these things, and my inward parts trembled. Inward parts could be translated stomach, 
maybe even bowels. Think of your, your stomach like a, a calm lake, okay? Uh, uh, full of stomach acid. <laughs> Go with me. It's a calm lake, but then a storm sets in. And the wind blows, and the lightning flashes, and the thunder crashes, and suddenly the surface of that lake is no longer tranquil. It's roiling and boiling, and your stomach acid is churning, splashing up into your esophagus. Not to be gross, but you are sick to your stomach. That's how Habakkuk felt at the revelation of his God. At the sound, my lips quivered. Have you ever seen a child riding a bike, and they wipe out, they wreck, and they wreck hard? They're laying on the ground, their knees are skinned up, their arms are skinned up, they've banged their head. Luckily, they were wearing a helmet, but, and they're a little stunned. They're not too sure what's going on. They're not sure if they should cry or laugh or what. And so they, they're kind of looking around dazed, and then they see mommy or daddy running. And they can tell mommy and daddy are serious. Okay, this is a bad thing. I should probably be upset here. And then what happens? Their lip begins to quiver, right? Right before they burst into tears. That's what Habakkuk is describing here. That the sound of your prophecy, Lord, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones. My frame, I can't support myself. I feel like I'm going to collapse. Those of you who are fitness freaks, you'll know the feeling after you've had a hard workout and you can barely stand, let alone walk. That's the idea of Habakkuk here. And in my place I tremble. I'm shaking uncontrollably. This man is having a complete physiological meltdown at this point. Now, I'm not saying that every act of repentance that we enter into needs to look exactly like that. But that's a pretty good picture. That's a pretty good picture of how brokenhearted a man was over sin. And in this case, it wasn't even his own personal sin. It was the sin of his country. But he was horrified by the vision of ugliness and sinfulness that had been granted to him by the Lord. And he responded accordingly. Back to Joel, and we'll continue our exploration of of the components of genuine repentance. In verse 13, he says, And I want you to rend your heart and not your garments. Now this is a reference to a Middle Eastern custom of that day where if you were a Hebrew male and you were upset about something, you were visibly disturbed by something that had just occurred. You would take your hands and you would grab your robe down the front and you would tear it. And it was just a, it was just a custom, it was just a tradition. But it was saying, I am really upset here. I'm hopping mad. So he says, don't bother rending your garments over your sin if your heart's okay. He referred to the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs, if you'll recall. The point was, you look real clean and pretty on the outside, guys, but inside you're filled with disgust and decay and filth and dead men's bones. Rend your heart and not your garments. That's why I said a moment ago, you must be brokenhearted over your sin. You must be angry at yourself for sinning. Now, I hear the, maybe the complaint in some of your hearts right now. And you might say something like this. I might say something like this. Well, that's all well and good, but I just don't really respond that way. I'm not an emotional person. I'm not a crier, as it were. And I just really can't see myself doing this. Well, what I want to encourage you is that I think what the Lord is doing here is he's giving us a blueprint, a model, if you will, for for how you are to repent. Just like the Lord gave his disciples a blueprint for how to pray, in the Gospels with the Lord's Prayer, 
he wasn't telling them, you need to say exactly this, 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 and this, and that's how you pray. He was saying, this is the structure, the form that your prayers need to take. And I think the same thing applies here. Let me give you a personal example. Um, A few weeks ago, Michael had some friends over. They were just stopping by, so they were just picking up something from the house. Uh, Michael, for those who don't know, is my son. He's 15. And they were just stopping by for a moment, and they were in the living room, and I was talking with them. And a truck pulls up outside, and it was a salesman. He was selling meat, steaks. Now, for those that don't know me very well, I, by nature, am very selfish and very impatient and very uh, jealous of my time. Uh, I tend to think that it's all about me, and I really don't want to be bothered with anybody else. Now, again, that's me by nature. The Holy Spirit is reforming that slowly and begrudgingly. But that's, that's my typical mentality a lot of times. And so that was the mentality that I had as I approached the door to, to speak to this man. I didn't know exactly what he was going to say. I didn't plan out what I was going to say. But this was my mentality. It was one of selfishness and impatience. So I go to the door and I open it. And I happen to leave it open so people inside can... I mean, I didn't plan for people inside to hear me, but they could hear what I was saying. And he walks up and he says, Hi there, do you like steak? And again, my selfish, Tim-focused mentality, I responded with the first thing in my head. No. Very rudely and abruptly and probably a little condescendingly. And immediately, as soon as the words were out of my mouth, do you know what I heard behind me? A snicker from a teenager. And it crashed in on me like an anvil on top of my head, what I had just done. First of all, I had lied. I like steaks very much, thank you. Second of all, I had treated this man very poorly. I mean, you might say, oh, it was just one word. Well, no, no, that is not how we are to approach other people. That is not how we are to show them the character and nature of God, by being rude and curt and impatient. Thirdly, I had a group of teenagers that I'm supposed to be modeling Christ before right behind me who didn't see Christ. They saw Tim. One of them, at least, that I know of does not have a strong male godly father figure in his life. He, of all of them, needed to see the nature of Christ in that moment. And fourthly, what did I just do to the reputation of Jesus? What if that man, this morning, decided he wanted to visit a church? And he picked Daniel's Bible Church. And he walks in and sees me standing here. What do you suppose that would do to his impression of a Christian? I was horrified. And I tried to salvage the situation. He asked, he asked another question like, uh, well, can I interest you in some stakes anyhow or something? And I said, uh, I'm sorry, sir, I'm just not interested. But the damage was done. And as soon as I shut the door, I'm, I'm sure he could still hear it, the teenagers all burst into laughter. They thought it was the funniest thing they'd ever seen in their life, which just made my mortification worse. I was angry with myself. I didn't cry, but I was furious. I actually, after a few minutes, I jumped in the truck. I tried to find this guy. I was going to buy him a steak out of condolence and offer a verbal apology, but or buy me a steak from him, not buy him a steak. Uh, but I, I couldn't find him, so the damage was left done. But I believe that was genuine biblical repentance, only matched by the magnitude of my horrible sin. But I believe that was genuine biblical repentance. So you see, I don't think you have to look exactly like Habakkuk and, you know, in in how he felt over sin, but the components must be there. 
You must take it seriously. You must enter it in, into it with a whole heart. You must be brokenhearted, whatever that looks like for you, whether that's anger or sorrow or weepiness or whatever. But those components must be there in order for it to be biblical repentance. And so we find rending your heart and not your garments, uh, that is the, the third component of repentance. It is characterized by authenticity. I almost forgot that blank. Sorry, guys. It's characterized by authenticity. And now what I think the Lord does at this point is just phenomenal. Now, don't get me wrong. He's already laid out the pattern of what's going to happen. If you don't repent, here's what's going to happen. But what I think is so awesome about this is now he says, here's why you want to repent. Not to get out of something, but here's your motivation. This is your motivation to repent. Me as a parent, I typically say, if you don't straighten up and do what you're supposed to do, then this punishment's going to come. I rarely take the time to say, this is why you want to obey me. It's a good thing. I treat it like a horrible weight around the child's neck. But the Lord doesn't do that. He gives us both sides. Continuing in verse 13. Now return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious. And He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. And He's relenting of evil. Let's take these one at a time. He's gracious. That means that He shows favor to those who don't deserve it. Make no mistake, folks. What we deserve is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. What you have earned by being a sinner is to die. And don't think for a moment that because you repented at some point, you've earned anything. The only reason that you have been set free from the bondage to sin and been granted eternal life and a relationship with God is because He's gracious. That's it. Your repentance does not qualify you for anything. The Lord is compassionate. He cares for you. He feels sorrow over your pitiful condition that you sometimes don't even recognize. He's brokenhearted over the way you're destroying your life with sin. He's slow to anger. You know, for us, anger is oftentimes an emotion, isn't it? It's a flash in the pan, a drop in the bucket. Uh, it's, it's entered into quickly, without much thought. It's reactionary, and it's unrighteous. But for the Lord, His anger is really not an emotion at all. It's a careful, deliberate, reasoned, considered response to the unrighteousness in His world. So therefore, He is slow to anger with you, even though you keep sinning over and over and over and over and over. He's abounding in loving kindness. What's that mean? That's a funny term. We don't use that nowadays in our culture. Well, it kind of means something like this. If you take love and you add it to kindness, okay, you've got a sacrificial love that is kind, and then you multiply that by faithfulness. That's kind of the idea of loving kindness. It's a sacrificial, kind love that just continues on. It doesn't diminish. It doesn't decrease. It stays consistent. It's unconditional. The Lord is abounding in loving kindness and He's relenting of evil, number five. Well, what does that one mean? Does that mean that the Lord gives a wink and a nod and turns a blind eye sometimes to evil? No. We know that it can't mean that because He says that He doesn't in other scriptures we're not going to turn to. So it must mean something different. Well, the Hebrew word ra, it has an idea of evil but also calamity or injury 
or misery or distress. And some of your translations will actually translate this verse that the Lord is relenting over calamity or distress. And that's the idea. The Lord is such a good God. He loves you so much that He is willing, if you repent, to set aside the the doom and destruction that are due to you. He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Let me read to you a quote from a fellow named Matthew Henry. He is a 17th century uh, pastor and theologian. He actually wrote in a, a commentary of the entire Bible in his life. It actually wasn't finished before he died, but some friends finished it for him. And he is describing God, and he says this, He, meaning God, is all that beauty and perfection that can be represented to us by light. He is a self-active, meaning he's the only one who determines what he does, uncompounded, means he's not mixed with anybody else, spirituality, purity, wisdom, holiness, and glory. And then the absoluteness and fullness of that excellency and perfection. There is no defect or imperfection, no mixture of anything alien or contrary to absolute excellency, no mutability nor capacity of any decay in him. That is the God that we serve. And that is the motivation that God gives here for why you should repent. Really, the question shouldn't be, why should I repent? The question or the response should be, why shouldn't I repent? Considering how good God is and how loving he is, why wouldn't I want to repent before this gracious and merciful and wonderful God? And then we come to verse 14, and this is possibly my favorite part of the whole passage. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. In other words, I don't know if God is going to uh, spare me or not. I don't know if he's going to prevent the Babylonians from coming in and destroying my country. I don't know if he's going to restore my job to me. I don't know if he's going to fix my marriage. But it doesn't matter. I'm going to do it anyhow. I'm going to repent, period. End of issue. Exclamation mark. You know, my mind is drawn naturally to the book of Daniel. You'll recall Daniel's three friends, Hananiah, Azrael, and Mishael, and Azariah. And they were renamed. You might recognize their names as Meshach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, you'll recall Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he decided that he wanted people to worship him. So he set up a giant 90-foot-tall golden statue. And he said, When my musicians begin to play, I want every knee in the kingdom to bow down and worship this statue. So the music played. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said no. They remained standing. Nebuchadnezzar was informed of this, and he was furious. He had them brought before him, and he said, Listen, guys, I've got this fiery furnace over here. It's burning it will incinerate you, and I'm going to toss you into it if you don't do what I say. And notice their response. I love this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. This is Daniel chapter 3, if you're trying to find it. O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
I don't care what my present physical circumstances are. I don't care whether the Lord is going to restore my physical fortunes. I'm going to repent because it's the right thing to do. That's the kind of attitude that you need to have when you're entering into repentance. Now, as I close, I want to caution us because I think, obviously this applies to non-believers, right? People who are facing the wrath of God. It's very clear that they must come to saving repentance in order to be saved. But I think that sometimes what happens in Christendom is we, we have a backwards view of repentance, I think. And if, if I was going to show it on a, a graph, maybe a line graph, it would look something like this. And I don't think any of us would say this out loud, but I think subconsciously our actions indicate this. And let's say that this graph is showing the chart of your Christian life from salvation to one year in to year five, year 10, year 20, and then eventual glorification, okay? I think that the way we conduct ourselves is that we start off with a huge outpouring of repentance when we first come to Christ. But then, as the years go by, we get a little lax, we get a little apathetic, and our attitude towards sin gets maybe a little less forceful than it once was. We try to manage our sin. We try to keep it in the closet, like I mentioned earlier. Maybe we're someone who's prone to anger, and we really never deal with the anger. We don't deal with the root of the issue, and we're really not all that broken up about it. We feel maybe a little bad when our child cries because we yelled at him, but we really don't ever take steps to completely defeat that sin through the work of the Holy Spirit. And then we kind of figure, well, I'll be glorified one day, and so my sanctification will be complete, and I'll be good to go. Again, I don't think any of us would say this. I'm not, I'm not saying that you would ever think this consciously. I'm saying I think that this is what our pattern of behavior sometimes indicates about our attitude toward repentance. And there's two reasons I think this. One is because I see this tendency in my own heart and in the people in my life. Human beings are fickle and undependable. We're unreliable. We're distracted easily. And we don't appreciate the horror of sin the way God does. And secondly, I think this is why the New Testament authors over and over and over and over again stress the need to remain vigilant. You'll remember Christ when he was teaching a parable about the ten virgins preparing for their wedding. Five of them were fully prepared. They had their their wicks trimmed, they had their lamps full of oil, and five of them fell asleep. The bridegroom came at midnight. The five who fell asleep were not ready, and they were cast into outer darkness. Um, His point was, stay vigilant, stay alert. Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he likens us, Christians, to a group of runners preparing for a race. And he says, you need to train hard, As if you plan to win. Don't just try to finish. Win the race that you're running. He told his son in the faith, Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God that has been given to you. That's that's an action, folks. That's a verb. Fan it into flames. Don't just let it sit there and the coals die out. Peter says that we must prepare our minds. Keep sober in spirit. Fix our hope on the Lord. James goes so far in his wonderfully blunt way to say that if you, if you say with your mouth that you have faith, but you have no works to back it up, 
then your faith is dead. It's meaningless. It's irrelevant. It's not genuine faith at all. So I think that this is the tendency of human beings. This is our nature. But this is completely backwards. I think that the biblical model of repentance is that as we walk with the Lord and as we immerse our minds in the Scriptures and as we come to see the reality of how just how holy God is and just how ugly our sin is, we become more sensitive to it, not less. We should. We should become more sensitive to it, not less. We should be more brokenhearted over sin. We should be less casual about watching that movie with filthy language and sex in it. It should disgust us because it disgusts God. And I've heard many, many conversations among Christians and I've seen in my own heart the tendency to be casual about our sin and to not take it seriously and to not enter into repentance with a contrite heart. And that is not the biblical model. That is not what's described in Joel chapter 2. It's not what's described in 1 John 1, 9 that L.A. read for us earlier. If you want to memorize a verse about repentance, that's a great one. That's a great verse to memorize, 1 John 1, 9. That's the, the, the casual pattern that I described earlier is not biblical, genuine repentance. And so I just want to encourage all of us this morning, examine your hearts. If you don't know the Lord, my friend, or again, maybe you're sitting here this morning and we all know you. You've been at this church for X number of years. But you think, you know, I, that doesn't really look like my life. Do you know the Lord? That's a relevant question. If you are a believer, be careful. Be sure that when He comes, when He returns to this earth, He not finds you wanting as He did the church of Laodicea. And proceed to spew you out of his mouth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the gift of the scriptures. This is truly a gift, Lord. It is a wonderful treasure. It is a window into the mind of God. If we would just use this wonderful tool that we have. You have revealed yourself to us in so marvelous a fashion, in so many ways. You've given us the tools and the understanding and the method whereby we are to function as Christians. Help us to stay true to that, Lord. Help us to be genuine people of repentance. May we be broken over our sin, but not weighed down by it. Paul was not. He forgot what lied behind him and he pressed on toward the goal. May that be the cry of our hearts, to be upset with our sin, but don't let it guilt us into stagnation. May we ever pursue holiness and the image of Christ. Lord, take us out of here this morning with joy, with perhaps some soberness, with perhaps some introspection, but also with joy. Joy that we have the opportunity to repent. Joy that we are not condemned to death and destruction before a holy and righteous, angry judge. I thank you, Lord, for the gift of salvation. And Lord, I pray that as the the days and weeks go by 
and as we are perhaps able to help with the relief efforts here in southern West Virginia, I pray that we would be able to show the love and the joy and the splendor of God to those people that we come in contact with. Lord, I would ask you to add your blessing to this word this morning, this scripture, and may it fill our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.